Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And this is episode 41. Hello. Happy to be here. Happy Juneteenth. We are really, really excited to cover today's movie. I was so super excited to rewatch this. This was a pandemic watch. It debuted like November, I think, October, November of 2020. So when everybody was still pretty much locked down inside their house and at the mercy of whatever Netflix had on streaming. And when this came out, it came out around Halloween. And of course, what better way to celebrate Halloween when you can't leave the house and there aren't any trick-or-treaters than to watch many a scary movie. Very true. Yeah. And so I watched this one and it really freaked me out. And it also like made me very sad and depressed and affected me emotionally quite a bit. So one could argue that it's less a horror movie and more of a drama. But I think like so many of the movies that we featured on the podcast, it is one of those movies that strikes the perfect balance between having something to say and it being timely and being scary as hell. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Oh, we're talking about his house, by the way. Oh yeah, shoot, uh, I forgot to say. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about his house, uh, twenty twenty, directed by Remy Weeks. It's interesting because going into this, so you had messaged me like when we were still all in like at home times. I think you messaged me like literally right after you watched it and was just like, oh my God, this movie is amazing. It scared the crap out of me. And I hadn't gotten around to watching it. But in sort of researching ahead of our watch, I noticed that, like you said, many of the movies that we've covered here, some people say it's a horror film. Some people say it's not. Some people want to call it a thriller rather than a horror film. But like many of the movies we have watched, I don't know how you could not call this a horror film right like oh my god (laughs) scary as hell man it's scary as hell and the imagery and the imagery that is used to express and convey deeply held things i mean that's what horror does right exactly that's what this does Yeah, I was trying to go back through and like actually find what I said initially, but Juliet and I also talk about houses a lot. So it's kind (laughs) of hard to search his house in our messages because it's just like, did you see this house? Yeah, we spend an inordinate amount of time on uh, certain Facebook and Instagram accounts that highlight really bougie real estate listings. (laughs) Or like moderately bougie and like just outside of our price range because we're two broke people. <laughs> yeah, <So. laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, most of the houses we gravitate toward are not like bougie mansions. They're like just a little step above what we have. Yeah, and but we're also like, yeah, we're house poor. We, yeah. There's no way we could buy this. Yeah, no. <laughs> Unless our, the power of our houses combined. Yes. And yes. We- <laughs> you know, our horoscopes did say that like this is going to be a big transformative year and each of the dates out of like five dates Two out of the five, one was my birthday and one was your birthday. So I'm just saying. It's so weird. That was very strange. I was like, both of our birthdays? What the heck? I digress. Yeah. I was trying to find what I said initially, but there's no way. I just have this like vague memory of like sitting 
at my desk at home, like working from home, and you messaging me and being like, oh my god, you have to watch this movie. Um, Well, my heart was pretty well broken after I watched the movie for multiple reasons that we'll get into, but it's also really scary and... One of the things I love about international horror is being able to see aspects of regular life internationally that I otherwise would have no idea about. Yeah, definitely. And this movie centers around a pair of Sudanese refugees. They're escaping civil war in Sudan. And so they immigrate to England as refugees, as asylum seekers, actually. And they encountered tragedy along the way. In a boat, as they crossed the ocean, they lost their daughter. And so it's just the two of them. And those characters are Bol, who's played by Chope Derisu. You may have seen him in an episode of Black Mirror. He's been in a couple of other things, but this was like his big feature film debut. And then Wonmi Mosaku, who plays Rial, his wife. And Wonmi Mosaku played Ruby in Lovecraft Country, oh, okay. um, if you caught Lovecraft Country. So she's a big character in that. And then another big name in this movie is Matt Smith, mm-hmm. like the Dr. Matt Smith. It's very strange how he pops up in the movie. And Javier Botet is also in this movie, but I will mention him later. Yeah. But the two of them, Rayal and Bol, they have lost their daughter and they are granted asylum on bail under very strict rules to potentially become English citizens, British citizens. And it was extremely heartbreaking because although I was aware of the civil war in the Sudan, I think a lot of people were, I think that was 2018 when everybody became kind of aware of what was going on. Yeah, around about when things started coming to sort of international prominence and news. There was like like a, wasn't there like a documentary or something, or there was something viral on Facebook there have been a couple of documentaries, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, and some books and some really good reporting. And I think you're right that it was all starting to really come out around that time. Trying to figure out what that... Well, Do you I remember think, there was like a person that everybody was talking about? Well, I think what you're thinking of is is kind of twofold. Is, okay. So that was around the time. It was a little earlier, but people were definitely talking about it by 2018 that the refugee crisis in Europe was really going full force. And a lot of folks were fleeing the Sudan and other places where there were conflicts and civil wars and trying to seek asylum in Europe. And there was a lot of conflict within European countries about, you know, we see this a little bit in this film. Should we accept these folks? If we are accepting them, what are their conditions? Things like that. There was a really actually stunning This American Life episode about a refugee camp, two refugee camps uh, in Southern Europe, and just the conditions there and, you know, sort of the bureaucracy that the folks that are, you know, uh, supposedly temporarily living there get stuck in. There was also around that time, I think this is might be what you're thinking of, a lot of Sudanese refugees, as portrayed in this film, were coming over on boats mm-hmm. and were dying. Right. You know, there were like okay. these horrible mass losses of lives in these boats, you know, and we know that that situation is not unique to Sudanese refugees coming to Europe. Like, you know, there was very similarly a situation with. And I feel horrible that I'm not remembering their country of origin. I believe it was Haitian refugees coming to the U.S. And it was the same thing where 
it was a very large tragedy where many, many people lost their lives because they were making these very dangerous boat trips. You know, lots of people packed into very small boats that are not designed for this type of journey. Yeah. And I think there were several incidents right around 2018. So that might be what's pinging your memory. Yeah. I was thinking of there was this one person. He was like a military, like a general or something. And there was like a big viral campaign on Facebook about it. And I cannot remember the guy's name, but it was basically like, this guy is terrible. Here's all of the terrible things that he's done. And there were like huge fundraising efforts and things like that because people were just not aware of what was happening. So although I was aware of what was happening in the sedan, I was not aware of the continued influx of asylum seekers into Britain, Mm -hmm. into England. Mm -hmm. And then seeing kind of the seedier side of like, what is it actually like to seek asylum? Because a lot of times you'll hear these like amazing, you know, success stories Mm -hmm. like this person created a business for themselves and everything's great. Or you might see people who immigrate who are able to like really hit the ground running and then be successful. But asylum seekers are automatically at a disadvantage. And this movie kind of displays that like to a T. Yeah, I really, to be quite honest, did not realize the differences, the stark differences between, you know, immigration, being a refugee, being an asylum seeker. You know, they're all interwoven. But here in the U.S., the sort of pathways and supports can be very, very different. We did a project at work in 2019 going into 2020, in fact, for our second season, all about those experiences. And I learned a lot from listening to folks in our area who had come from other places for a variety of reasons, describe what the pathways were to get here and sort of what hoops they had to jump through, what conditions they had to survive under while they were, you know, waiting or in kind of a holding pattern or stuck in bureaucracy. And although, you know, the UK and the US are not exactly the same, I think the struggle that is portrayed is very universal. Yeah. And the sorts of feelings in which people who had the privilege of being born in the country kind of lord over the folks who are seeking asylum. And funny enough, where we live is actually kind of famous for accepting, I think it's called the Dayton Peace Accord, right? Yeah, the Dayton Peace Accord is a little different than the Welcome Dayton stuff and the immigrant-friendly city and the refugee-friendly cities initiatives. We we accepted a bunch of Bosnian immigrants in the early 90s during the Bosnian... It's just kind of known as the Bosnian War. And I actually had some friends I went to high school with who were Bosnian. They Mm. immigrated here through that kind of program. So kind of a tie in there. But I think that the treatment of folks who are seeking asylum is definitely mirrored here versus what it appears at least and obviously we're seeing a dramatization but remy weeks is british he is a british Mm -hmm. man so Mm -hmm. i would say he probably has a better idea at least directorially which is very disappointing and kind of why i wanted to do this one for our juneteenth episode is just to kind of underscore the struggle not just here but everywhere Mm -hmm. yeah especially for for freedom and liberation and exactly and safety i would even say I think it's important to emphasize, too, that 
you know, although this movie was made in 2020, like this is an ongoing thing that people are experiencing. Like I just did a quick Google search while we were talking here and like literally there are headlines like one 10 hours ago, you know, rainy season threatens to cut off aid to Sudanese refugees, you know, like, so this is an ongoing situation. But to your point a minute ago, you know, this film does a great job balancing both like real life horrors and then sort of the supernatural horrors, which I feel like is kind of our sweet spot here on the podcast, like films that balance that out. But I think the thing that really struck me is like, it's not five minutes into the film and you just feel the discomfort of the immense privilege you have like sitting watching this movie on Netflix. And yes, this is a dramatization, you know, this is, but it is a dramatization based on, you know, real experiences that real people are having like in this very moment. And I was just immediately struck by just how privileged I am, you know, yeah. how far the experiences of our main characters are from my daily life, you know, and not in a like, oh, this is fantastical or it's air quotes exotic. Like, no, just the stark differences in, you know, economic privilege, in identity privilege and things like that. Like this movie really starts with that and then takes you into the story. Yeah, I mean, we see a little teeny tiny bit of what they went through prior to getting to the UK, but we really start off with like being basically in jail, mm-hmm. in asylum seeker jail, yeah. and then being at the whim of the uncaring folks who run this jail. I hesitate to call it a jail because that makes you think bars, and this is less bars and more like you're packed into rooms with multiple people. It's a detention center. Yeah. You know, I think it's not dissimilar to the some of the detention centers in the southern United States border. Yeah. That, you know, folks that are asylum seekers, attempting to be asylum seekers in this country are in very similar situations. Yeah. One of the things that just struck me, like, right off the bat is the freedom and the acceptance of Rial and Bull is so incredibly important to them. They're so worried about it, so mm-hmm. tied up in having this freedom and being accepted and even being given a chance. Because if they don't, the only thing that they have is to go back to Sudan. They're going right. to be deported, which we know from later footage in the movie that it's going to be terrible, that there's nothing left for them there. Yeah. And... It means nothing to the colonizers. It means nothing to the British people who are running this detention center. One dude's on his phone. The other people are like whispering at one another. They're making decisions somehow arbitrarily. And they're just like, yeah, okay. But you're on bail. So like, don't think this is like a free ride. You're you're not scot-free. You're basically on a temporary basis, sort Mm -hmm. of. I think all of that is so interesting, too, because it's, you know, and this is like... (laughs) not to go down like let me reform the entire immigration system in the u.s and the uk you know in all white western countries but it's so bizarre to me and i'm grateful to this movie for reminding me of how punitive the system is like these are individuals you know we're meeting individuals who have literally been through hell to escape a horrible situation and try to shoot their shot at a second chance, you know, to survive and maybe thrive. 
And they are just consistently from the word go treated not just as lesser than, but treated as suspicious, mm-hmm. uh, treated as other in like some big ways. And even their temporary status is just, it's framed in such a punitive manner. Like they're shown this home that they are so grateful to have. And the whole time, this moment that could be a very joyful moment of relief is couched in Matt Smith's character saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. Like just this litany of things, you know, no candles, no this, no that, no friends, no parties, no cigarettes, no smoking, no blah, 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 blah. Oh, and you can't hold a job. You can't try to better yourself, you know, air quotes, better yourself in a capitalist system. You know, you can't do this. You can't do that. You're basically in literal limbo, but you should be grateful and you should also try to fit in. Yeah. Not only should you fit in, you should not cause trouble and yeah. be, quote, one of the good ones. Yeah. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Who, who defines what one of the good ones is? Yeah. So uh, basically, he's saying assimilate and act white. We need you to not make trouble, exactly. be quiet, act white, and you'll do well. Yeah. That, that's what he's asking for them. And he said, make it easy on them. Be one of the good ones. That's what he said. Yeah. That's what Matt Smith's character said. And... So basically, give up all of the things that make you Sudanese. Give give all of that up. You can make friends, but don't be too friendly. Don't Mm -hmm. have parties. You can't use a grill outside because later they're using a grill. And they're like, well, you can't be doing the grill in the back. Not only that, they say don't work. And then they give them 74 pounds, which is the equivalent of 92 American dollars a week. (laughs) So they can't buy a TV. There's And there's obviously no TV there. Yeah. And the other part is, like, English is not their first language. They do speak English well, but it's not their first language. So navigating is incredibly difficult. They're from the Sudan. They're not from a major metropolitan city like London. So they get turned around easily. They don't know where the library is. They don't have access to those things. Like, they're not familiar with how to navigate the system that's so new. Not to say, like, they couldn't navigate in the Sudan. Obviously, they could. And... Rial ends up getting to the doctor's office, but like, same token, she gets turned around, she gets lost. Even though she has this like relatively simple map, she can't do it. Yeah. She's totally turned around. Yeah. It's so frustrating. It's just constantly jumping through hoops that you can never possibly get through. Yeah. And I think you hit on something else there that I was really struck by that I think is from what I have read and heard and and seen, you know, is a very, you know, universal experience for many immigrants, asylum seekers and refugees, especially those of color coming into predominantly white countries, which is the assumption that because you are other, you're not smart. You're like lacking in education and intellect. And Bull says over and over again, like I worked at a bank. And these are smart people. You can tell like they are intelligent. They are educated. And yet they're made to feel even lesser than in a situation where they're already at a disadvantage that anybody would be in being in a new place where you don't quite, you know, some of the language, but not all of the language. And you've also been through intense, intense trauma. Even if, you know, we didn't live in a capitalist society and blah, 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 there's still a 
pride that you feel when you're able to provide for yourself yeah, in, in whatever way possible, whether that's for cash, whether that's an exchange of goods. There's a pride that you take in being able to provide for yourself or being able to execute a skill that you know you're good at mm-hmm. and being able to support yourself in that way. And you can tell that they had previously done that. It looked like Rial maybe worked at a school or like a community center. Yeah. Either that or she spent a lot of time there. She, there was some sort of purpose to her being there at this community center. And then Bull worked in a bank. So clearly there's some self-sufficiency there. Yeah. And then they come to the UK and they're like, we're giving you a house, but you're only getting this amount of money and you have to make it work, but don't make trouble and don't be loud and don't have too many friends, but also fit in and yeah. be like everybody else. Yeah. I cannot imagine having to figure out how to live on $92 a week. Right. Period. Yeah. yeah. Let alone to do that in a house that is full of roaches and trash and moldy wallpaper and also not be able to watch TV and just like dissociate. Mm-hmm. And also be told you need to be grateful because the other thing that they keep whipping them in the face with is your house is bigger than mine. Yeah. And yeah. that was making me so frustrated yeah. because it's like, does it matter? Yeah. For, like how big their house is? Because have you seen it? Right. It's such a toxic attitude to say, Ugh. problematicness aside, there's an episode of Louie back in the day where he's trying to explain to his daughter that you shouldn't be comparing what's in your bowl to the person next to yours to see mm-hmm. if you have more it's to make sure that they have enough. That's right. the only way that you should compare. And that is how I feel about this situation is these folks have no concern about making sure that Riel and Bull have enough. What they're doing is comparing apples to apples and they're saying, well, your house is bigger than mine. You should be grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But also we live in a terrible neighborhood where there's all kinds of stuff going on all the time. It's depressing. It's all brick buildings, either it's fixed income situation Mm -hmm. or, you know, a lot of asylum seekers, a lot of young kids who live there. I hate saying this term, but it's low income housing. Oh, yeah. It's assigned housing for folks who are low income. And they're like, well, your house is bigger than mine. It's like, yeah, but you probably live next to a park or mm-hmm. you get to have a car, you know, like all the X, Y, and Z. The circumstances of their homes don't matter. What they should be concentrating on is simply that Real and Bull have enough, that right. they have enough to be comfortable and safe and fed and clothed mm-hmm. and things like that. All things that humans deserve. Yeah. Uh, Every human is deserving of that dignity. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you can view this movie through so many lenses. And although we're experiencing it through the lens of people who are refugees seeking asylum from their country of origin, I think that so much of the message of this movie can apply to anyone in poverty, anyone who is of a, you know, a marginalized, especially an economically marginalized community or a community that is marginalized in another way that is then manifested in economic consequences. Because I think about people even in our own community and the sort of view of the privilege, you know, I think about certain neighborhoods in our city where people are like, well, there are giant houses in that neighborhood. And it's like, well, yeah, they're giant houses that are falling apart. The city doesn't pave the streets. 
yes, somebody might have a nice house and every other house on their block is literally burned out and is a safety hazard, but their house is bigger than yours and that's apparently a problem. Yeah. You know, or or just the usual trope of like, this is going to be like a very simplistic, reductive thing, but I think we've all heard something like this, you know, people on welfare buying steak, yeah. you know, people using their food stamps to buy steak, you know, or to buy something nice. I think of it because, you know, we're wrapping up graduation season right now. And I think of things I have heard over the years from people and attempting to call their bluff and, you know, say like, well, even people in poverty deserve to have a treat every once in a while or have a celebration or have something a little special to celebrate. I mean, you shouldn't even have to say that. Right. But I think this movie expresses that well, too. Yeah. And there's a moment where Rael, when she's um, trying to find the doctor's office, she needs to get a checkup. She tries to greet a group of black young men who look like they're probably in like secondary school. They're wearing like uniforms and she greets them in her language and they make fun of her and they talk down to her and they get her more confused and they deliberately point her in the wrong direction of where to go to get to this doctor's office and othering her even though she's of the same race Mm -hmm. because she's from another country and they tell her to go back to Africa. Yeah. And when she was simply just trying to be polite and ask for directions, but she, you know, misspoke and tried to greet them and obviously they only speak English, so they had no idea what she was saying. It was just so frustrating I have a special sensitivity to marginalized people in movies getting taken advantage of. I mean, I don't mm. think that anybody's ever supposed to think that that is a feel-good mm-hmm. situation, but, like, especially the elderly and, you know, people like that, it always, like, hits me extra hard where I'm like, yeah. how could you take advantage of somebody just out of pure meanness? I just can't yeah. understand that. And that's what happens to Riel. Fortunately, she ends up making it to the doctor. But then you have a situation where rather than being like the rule meister, you have like the well-meaning left lady who's like, oh, yeah, you know, just trying to make sure everything's okay. And I'm aware of your situation, but also I'm going to say all of the wrong things to make you feel like a tiny, tiny, tiny person. Uh, Yeah. And I thought that that scene was shot so well and that both of the actors in that scene did such a wonderful job. Because you could feel that very typical situation happening where the white woman misspoke out of good intention, I will say, but was ignorant and misspoke. And at first, Rial placated her and tried to make her feel better and then finally got frustrated and spoke her truth, which then made the white woman uncomfortable And then it was as if Rial ought to have felt bad for making this white woman uncomfortable. And that is just like a universal thing. And it's a universal problem. I've mentioned it on this show before, but I read a really great book earlier this year called Against White Feminism. And it talks about that fragility within white feminism, especially when dealing with international women of color, and how there are just so many missteps on the parts of white women who have good intent, but good intent isn't enough, you right. know, to show true allyship and how 
it invariably turns into exactly the situation we saw play out on the screen, which is that well-intentioned white woman screws up and then somehow the women of color are responsible for making her feel better. Yeah. Even though they are the ones to whom the offense was done. Yeah. Like, ugh. I loved that scene. I thought it was so powerful and really showed Riel's like character and her personality. The scene in which we're talking about, the the white woman mentions that Riel has scars on her face and she has a scar on her arm as well. Deliberate scarification. It's next to her eyes. She has like these sort of check marks almost or arrows that are going towards her eyes on both sides of her face. And the white woman says, those are beautiful. And it strikes a nerve in Rial because those are indicators of the tribe that she was born into. And she said, and I thought that this was a really powerful line, which is why I'm kind of going down this road. She said that one tribe has a certain set of scars and then the other tribe has a different set. And so she gave herself both because, and I quote, I survive by belonging nowhere. And I thought that was such a powerful line for her because at this point in the movie, She's homeless. I mean, although she has this house that she's been given and, you know, instructions on how to live and all this stuff and and hopefully a permanent place in England, she feels homeless. She -hmm. feels like her heart does not have a home, that she's left Sudan and that's where her family was that was slaughtered and her husband and then losing her daughter along the way. Her heart doesn't have a place to rest. So... She says, I survive by belonging nowhere. And it never feels good to see somebody merely surviving. Right. You know? Yeah. So I thought that was a really powerful scene of her. But I also wanted to mention the umbrella thing that's happening in that scene is having PTSD from having a terrible, terrible, awful experience happen mm-hmm. to you. Someone in your care dying. Yeah. Accidentally. Yeah. But dying nonetheless. And just having to keep going and and not being able to stop and rest and think and process and also not having a safety net. You know, Mm -hmm. Real and Bull just have to keep going. Yeah. They can't take a breath and just like mourn their daughter, Nyagak. In a lot of movies that deal with death and grief and having that as kind of uh, ever-present, omnipresent demon or ghost or what have you, like the Babadook, that's a very, very, very normal thing is having something Mm -hmm. extremely traumatic happen and then being so wound up in the everyday tasks of living that you just simply don't have a chance to take a breath. Yeah, and I think in Rial's situation too, we have to remember like in The Babadook, for example, our main character and her son are mourning a spouse and a father, a singular person. Bull and Rial are mourning their daughter they're mourning friends and loved ones who have died in the civil war they're mourning their community you know the sort of effects on their community and they're dealing with you know leaving their home and it's hard to leave your home like even if you're like moving to the coolest place ever for the best opportunity there's a grief there and there's mourning there and they're being forced to make really hard choices and flee and go on a very hard journey. So in addition to mourning a person, they've got all of this other trauma that's just piling up and piling up. And because they're in survival mode, there's never a stop and take a moment for myself. It's always forge ahead. Yeah, they're absolutely in survival mode in this entire movie. 
there are moments where we see a little bit of softness between the two of them because they're literally the only thing that the other has in this country. But on the other hand, it's like they're so beat down. They're, They're just barely able to do the everyday tasks of life. They're just barely able to eat food that they enjoy, food that they like, that they're used to eating, even though Rial, you know, says that it tastes like metal and Bull is like, you'll get used to it. Because once again, when you have 92 US dollars a week to spend on food, what the hell are you going to eat? Canned food. Yeah. A bunch of bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think their coping mechanisms, their divergent coping mechanisms are really, really interesting because... You know, throughout the movie, you as an audience member sort of go back and forth between like, who's right, who's wrong, and ultimately, they're both kind of right and wrong. Not to always side with the woman, but I think Bull is a little more responsible for the giant mistake that is made that sort of resulted in the um, haunting, as Mm -hmm. it were. But Rial also went along with it. Granted, she was in survival mode. But earlier on, you see Bull really just going full force into assimilation. You know, he cuts his hair. He changes clothes. He explores the town. He goes into a pub and watches football. He wants to eat at the table and use utensils. Whereas Rial goes in the complete opposite direction. She wants to bring their traditions and their cultural practices with her. You know, she wants to dress in the clothes that make her feel like herself. She wants to enjoy meals that make her feel comfortable and at home. And the interesting part about that is the movie sort of sets you up to, in different moments, be like, oh, yeah, like, this person is really doing the right thing and this person is doing the wrong thing or why can't this person just, you know, give this other person grace or give them, you know, a chance or whatever. And I came to this conclusion where like, they're both right and they're both wrong. Like they're both making really valid choices given the situation that they're in. Yeah, it's tough to make that decision because It's such a delicate balance that you have to strike when you're forced into a country that's not your origin country and then having to assimilate quickly. So you're kind of caught between how do I keep those things, those parts of my culture that make me me while also being able to assimilate into a country? Because on the one hand, do I ever think that people should assimilate because I hate that word because it makes me think of the Borg and the Borg is bad. Me too. Um, you should never have to assimilate, but there is a certain amount of accommodation that mm-hmm. has to happen in order for you to both understand and be able to take advantage of the place that you live. Um, not take advantage in the bad way, but like utilize the yeah. place that you live yeah. while also being able to maintain your cultural identity, I think. And in this case, Bowl is very much on the assimilate side. And Rial is like, no, I want to feather my nest. I want to make myself comfortable. We just got a chance to rest. And I just saw my entire family slaughtered. Mm-hmm. And then we lost our daughter. We think we they've lost their daughter. Right. And now we're finally able to just take a breath and just be in this house. And we have all of these terrible rules against stacked against us, but we're here together and we've made it and we're not going to go back. And the ways that they handle that are like, you're totally right. They're both right and they're both wrong. Mm -hmm. 
But I think by the end, we're able to find sort of a happy medium of like, okay, we're going to assimilate, but also we're going to respect where we came from. Yeah. There's a lot of parallels between this movie and The Babadook, I think. Oh, yeah, I think so. Both movies explore trying desperately to run away from Mm -hmm. grief and from guilt and that making the big bad bigger and badder and more powerful and more harmful versus turning and standing and embracing it or fighting it head on or locking it in the basement yeah, as it were well, you know well i was going to say i think the endings are very similar in fact you know that you don't eliminate it you know the manifestation of the trauma or the grief you can never fully kill it or rid yourself of it you just have to be at peace with living in the house with it yeah i mean i guess we should probably address the big bad in the room but yeah there's a moment in the middle of the movie where Rial tells the story of the Apeth, the night witch, uh-huh. which her mom told her about. And later we find out that the reason why they're being messed with by this Apeth, this night witch, who is played by Javier Botet, who I totally love. And I just absolutely <laughs> love his creature yeah. presentation. So creepy. One of a kind. Truly. Yeah, definitely. We find out that Niagak, their daughter, is not actually their daughter. And was someone else's daughter, and the only way that they could get on the bus to escape was that Bull kind of, well, he did kidnap the daughter, and he kidnapped her so that they could get on this bus and get away, and then while they're making the ocean crossing, she dies, she drowns. The boat capsizes, and Bull tries to save Rial, or does save Rial, and in doing so, leaves Neagak to die. Which you kind of think you know what's happening in the first half of the movie. You're like, okay, it's their daughter. You know, she died. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. And then when you find out what Bull did to get on the bus, which it's a shitty situation all around. Yeah. And people do really fucked up stuff to survive. And I never want to be put in that situation. And I never want to judge anybody who is in that situation. But... It adds this whole extra layer of tragedy to what's happening because Bowl is sort of like, we have to move on. And I'm sorry that that happened, but there was no other way. Mm -hmm. And Rial is like, no, I promised I would protect her. And the way that they're dealing with the death and how to move on also affects the way that the Apeth, the Night Witch, who keeps promising that if Bowl sacrifices himself, he'll bring Niagak back. Mm-hmm. the way that the apeth manifests itself to the two of them is reflected in that way. Yeah. I thought that was so smart to show like the apeth is harmful to Bull. Yeah. It scares him on purpose in the dark. And simultaneously it sidles up to Rial and it makes her comfortable and it brings her to the community center that she lived in. And it simply watches her and brings her offerings and talks to her and whispers kind of sweet nothings in her ear to try and convince her to hurt Bull. Yeah. And to Bull, it's aggressive. It brings him nightmares. It brings him terrors. And it scares him. Yeah. But it can't hurt him. The only person, and that's, I feel like, a very crucial message in this movie, the only person who can hurt Bull is Rial or himself. Right. The Night Witch can't touch him. Right. I thought it was really beautiful the way that they 
depicted how the apeth presented itself to Rial and to Bol and how it kind of mirrored both the way that they were accepting the life that they're in now and also how they're dealing with the tragic death of this person that they were supposed to protect. Yeah, and I think Rial's response to all of it is really interesting. I really loved the way that you come to understand why she feels so strongly about Niagak and not just because like it was a horrible thing that happened, you know, to witness somebody's death is terrible, but you know, the fact that she continues to refer to her as her daughter and she wears the necklace and from her perspective, it seems to be both out of grief and of love. But when the apath brings her into that kind of dream hallucination into the school or the community center, and you see this community of women that she is surrounded by, these women who I don't presume to understand all of the societal relationships there. And actually, you don't need to quite understand like what the purpose of this gathering of women who are very close is, you know, whether it was a school or just their community in their town or whatever. But what is so obvious is the love they have for each other and the fact that they are united in like a community of care, you know, that they are in a truly communal existence where, you know, they are caring for each other as sisters, as mothers and daughters. And you know that they're not all blood relatives. That's Mm -hmm. one thing that is very obvious. And so to see in some tiny moments of flashback that Rial took that community that she lost because all of those women were slaughtered in um, the Civil War and brought that spirit of community to Niagak, even though you could tell she was not down with what Bull did. She was upset by it, but she still brought that spirit of care and protection to this girl. It all kind of made sense in the way she was talking about her. Cause at first it could have been a little weird mm-hmm. the way that she kept referring to her as her daughter and the way she had you honestly so fooled throughout the entire movie that it was her daughter. Mm-hmm. But that flashback did a lot to really help you understand the world that Rial was coming from and the world of sort of mothering and care for other women and girls that she was brought up in. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of that scene in Midsummer where they're all crying with Danny. Yeah. Um, although they're not all crying with Rial. There's like touching. There's mm-hmm. a woman next to her who's like touching her face and like rubbing her leg, you know, in very much a sisterly way. Like, yeah. Like letting her know, I'm here for you. I'm mm-hmm. wiping your tears. I'm I'm experiencing this with you. I'm holding you in, you know, whatever sadness or grief you're feeling. And it reminded me so much of that as like being accepted by a community and how powerful that can be. And that's exactly how that apeth got her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she had this such a powerful dissociative experience mm-hmm. for this. It had her convinced. I mean, yeah. the, the Night Witch had her convinced by that. And she is going to hurt Bowl. But Bowl ends up making the sacrifice himself, cutting himself so that he would attract the Night Witch. And that scene with the night witch with his fingers inside uh, Bull's arm, it was it was pretty intense. If you had any doubts that this was a horror film, <laughs> let that be. 
Yes. Among many, the one that really convinces you. So to speak on the horror aspect of it, I thought that the children, the drowned people. Oh, my gosh. Like, when I first watched the movie, it affected me so deeply. These shots of, like, unflinching shots of something that you should be terrified of. and, And then running towards the screen and things like that. Just out of focus, just out of view. Uh, being focused on the person and seeing something, you know, amorphous mm-hmm. kind of walking around them. But I did want to give Remy Weeks and the whole crew of this movie big props because the movie is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. I know we've talked about it before, and I can't remember what movie we were talking about it on. I think it was a movie that was originally 35 millimeter. But the richness of the shadows in this movie cannot mm-hmm. be overstated. Was it Parasite? Yes. Okay. Yes. I thought so. Yeah. The, the richness of the black areas of the movie are just, it is so important to me to see that, especially now, 2023, for me to be able to really see that true deep dark. Yeah. It's just so powerful. And this movie, the shadows and then... They do some really interesting, very dynamic things of just Real and Bull just talking, just back and forth. These beautifully lit shots Mm -hmm. where their shadows cast across their face. They're using candlelight in a lot of these. Light is an extremely important aspect of the movie, and they do such a good job with that. And there are also these really interesting set choices that show an actual literal divide between Rial and Bull. And I've always thought that that was such a great way to show how separate they were and divided they were on how they were going to proceed with their lives. I really thought that was um, just masterful. Yeah. And very similar to Parasite, too. There's a beautiful mix of very, very tight shots and also very wide, expansive shots or angles that show a vast space and yet a character being very like boxed in or trapped. And I think in movies like this, like Parasite, even like Babadook and and others that we like, the ability to really use the camera to put us in the same space as the character, to make us feel that claustrophobia or, you know, whatever the factors are of the world closing in on us or make us feel isolated despite being in a vast sort of space or environment or place to do that well is really a testament to good filmmaking and I'm really happy to see somebody like Remy Weeks who this is his first feature so he's already another one of those directors that I'm like I am so excited to see what he does next because if this is his first feature you know he got nominated for BAFTAs he did well at Sundance this film has an outstanding score on Rotten Tomatoes. I will take or leave Rotten Tomatoes, you know, with a grain of salt. But it's rare that a film gets such a good score. It's kind of like Pitchfork reviews. <laughs> when, <laughs> when something gets an exceptional score, you do take notice. Yeah. Uh, even if the rest of it is kind of crap. A.K.A. Um, uh, Janelle Monáe's new. <laughs> uh, yes. we're, reco- we're recording it on the... On release day yeah. <laughs> of The Age of Pleasure. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, just, just to see such an outstanding film as a first feature, I'm just like, okay, this is uh, yet another director whose career I want to follow because I think he's going to, I hope he's going to continue making really interesting and impactful things. And I hope he stays in the genre. 
Yeah, me too. I've said it a million times, but a really well done horror movie that also has something to say is something really exceptional. And I think we see that in small ways in a lot of movies, but in big ways in very few. Yeah. And this definitely is going to be racked up with those type of films like Day of the Dead, you know, Midsummer to a certain degree, like those type of movies that have um, real value. And I think it's even more special to make it timely and to make it about a social issue that is very real and very omnipresent happening all over the world, not just in England, not just in America, but all over the world to really bring that into a horror film and then also make it a horror film is like very Mm -hmm. special, I think. Yeah, well, to bring a community that we don't see in cinema often anyway outside of documentary and to bring them into a genre film, I really appreciate that because it does help raise awareness. I hope that people will come away from this film if you know you're a genre fan and maybe you choose not to or just don't get to follow the news as closely as you'd like to that watching this film will make you want to learn more about you know folks in the Sudan about asylum seekers around the world will make you want to look more into our own policies in this country about you know how we treat people who are coming here under very dangerous circumstances so Whenever a director can bring these topics into horror and do it in a way that is compassionate, but also makes a great horror film, like props to them. Chef's kiss. Yes. <laughs> so next time to, um, but you know, this one was really heavy. So let's, let's lighten it up a little bit. And we are going to be talking about, because I think our next release is going to be close to the 4th of July. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. So our 4th of July release, we'll just say that because I can't remember. No, it's on a Tuesday. So yeah, it would be 4th of July. July 3rd. Is oh, okay. So out. so July 3rd yeah. is going to be the day that our episode comes out. So your pre-Independence Day fun times, because most everybody's going to take that day off because yeah. it's a Monday, is American Werewolf in London. Yay. Which I freaking love this movie. I think it's hysterical and also practically just chef's kiss i don't even know what else to say it's just fantastic it's so fun i feel like i can't even think of that movie without the song bad moon rising yes like popping into my head like as you were talking i was like oh if it weren't totally illegal and the raa would sue me i just want to like bring that up under you talking about it but do it in your imagination everybody hopefully they did yeah Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Tonight.